great speakers, and this applies to your audience today because people are telling themselves, well, I'm not a great communicator, or I'm not good at public speaking, or I get nervous at public speaking. Well, I've got news for you. Every single person who you consider to be a great speaker or an inspiring speaker was not made that way. It's time! Work! Way! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. In this episode, I spoke with one of the most renowned public speaking experts in the world. My guest is a three-time Wall Street Journal best-selling author, internationally popular keynote speaker, Harvard instructor, and leadership advisor for some of the world's most admired brands. My guest is named Carmine Gallo. Carmine's books have been endorsed by folks like Howard Schultz, Mark Benioff, Tony Shea, Tony Robbins, and Adam Grant. In our conversation, he breaks down the science behind one of the most feared activities in human history, public speaking. We discuss the specific secrets and tactics for public speaking that he reveals in his book, Talk Like Ted. This conversation is so valuable because in our professional lives and in our personal lives, we will inevitably have to do some sort of presenting or public speaking. There are tons of actionable takeaways, and I hope it helps you out with your next talk. Today's podcast is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you are tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Carmine. Carmine, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Hi, Pat. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a relevant and a perfect audience for this type of content. And thanks for being a supporter of Talk Like Ted. I'm so glad that you read that book. I'm very excited. And I read it initially. I actually just reread it in preparation for our conversation. I think the audience is going to get a ton of really actionable, valuable insights uh, from some of the, the stuff we go through today. But first, I want to just ask you, what inspired you to write Talk Like Ted? Well, I have a very long career as a television journalist. I was in TV journalism for 15 years. And that's not something I write uh, too much about. That was the first part of my career. But early on, I began to notice something. You'd appreciate this because you do podcasts and video interviews. Uh, I was working in business news in New York. I'm from California, but I had a gig doing uh, CNN uh, business news in New York and that whole CNBC when, when business news was really starting to boom. So I got a job on Wall Street and I'm covering stock, the stock market and business news. Lou Dobbs was um, head of Moneyline back then at CNN. Everything was all about business news. I was a business news correspondent interviewing analysts and stockbrokers and CEOs and entrepreneurs. And this was also during the dot-com boom. 
you know, so all these all these young guys who were like completely building companies that you and I now know were just coming out with their ideas. It was an amazing time to be in television news, business correspondence, business news. And I began to notice something. I began to notice that we always had the same people back every week. They were the same folks on the Rolodex. There's 300,000 stockbrokers in New York City at that time. And yet we only had like the same 10 or 15 people come back time and time again. Were they the best stockbrokers in the city? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Were they the best economists? Were they the best analysts? Maybe, maybe they weren't. It didn't matter. They mm. were the best communicators. Mm. They were the men and women who could communicate complex ideas simply, clearly, and in a way that was engaging and interesting. They were the best guests to have because of their communication skills. And that's when I began to really figure out that it's your communication skills that will help you stand apart mm. in any field, in any industry. After I left television news, I started writing books on the subject. My first book became an international bestseller. Well, it was one of my first books. It was called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. Mm. And that was a book that was just on how to give that Steve Jobs style of presentation, which, by the way, most people still do not do. And he is still considered one of the great corporate presenters of all time. And yet most people still stick to bad PowerPoint uh -huh. 15 years after I wrote the book. <laughs> and, and Carmine, is, uh, is there anything that you'd point to about Steve Jobs style? Obviously, you have the whole book on it, but is there anything you'd point to about his style that stands out that you could summarize for the audience? S simplification. Mm. If there's one thing about Steve Jobs, I'm gonna give you two things actually. For, okay. The first thing I noticed was the simplification. Here's a little known fact for your audience. The average font size, okay, the text size on a Steve Jobs slide, I would say PowerPoint, but he didn't use PowerPoint. He used Apple Keynote. Same, same thing, right? The slide presentation. The, the, the average font size was 190-point font. Wow. <laughs> In other words, Pat, That's wild. One word. One word on uh -huh. a slide. Uh -huh. Two words on a slide. Or an image on a slide and no words on a slide. I just recently have been working with uh, some very giant tech companies, pharmaceutical companies, uh, healthcare companies, and I'm looking at the PowerPoints. There are some PowerPoints delivered virtually that I've counted 100 words on a slide. On a single slide. On a single slide. It's I, I think it's less than 12-point font. It's terrible. So that, that's the point. Steve Jobs really thought through communication he was a student of communication, presenting, uh, obviously design. How do we design tools mm -hmm. and computers and phones so that it's simple and intuitive? There's complexity in the back, but it's a simple user interface. That was the whole magic of Apple. Well, that he applied the very same philosophy to his business presentations. They were models of simplicity. But here's something I learned many years after I wrote Presentation Secrets. Uh, I never used the word storytelling to 
apply to Steve Jobs. Mm. I was hyper-focused on delivering slides, delivering presentations. Tony Fidel, who worked closely with Steve Jobs, created the first uh, iPod, and then went on to build the Nest, which later was sold to Google for about $3 billion. His name was Tony Fidel. Well, Tony Fidel is a great inventor. He was on a podcast not too long ago, maybe two years ago, where they asked him, what did you learn from Steve Jobs? And Tony Fidel said, storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. Hmm. In other yeah. words, Jobs approached presenting from a storytelling perspective. Now, that's something I've been studying for the better part of a decade now, and I wrote an entire book just on storytelling. Talk Like Ted goes into storytelling. Uh, but now, looking back, I can appreciate what he did. It's all about the narrative, the story you want to tell. You referenced Steve Jobs a couple times in Talk Like Ted as well, and one area that stands out to me is the element of practice, because a lot of people assume that Steve Jobs was just a naturally good public speaker, but I believe you reference like an interview with Steve Jobs back, way back in the day, maybe the seventies or the eighties. And it's like his first interview on TV and anybody yeah. can look this up, but it looks like he's about to like, and I think he even says like, I'm about to throw up he's, before yeah, this interview. He's so nervous. Uh, did you look up that video when you oh, first yeah. saw it in my book? Okay. I did. And was it clear that he was having a panic attack? Yeah. 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 He was clearly uncomfortable. Great speakers. And this applies to your audience today because people are telling themselves, well, I'm not a great communicator or I'm not good at public speaking or I get nervous at public speaking. Well, I've got news for you. Every single person who you consider to be a great speaker or an inspiring speaker was not made that way that they were or they weren't born that way they were made right great public speakers are not born they are made they practice and so what pat is alluding to is that very early in steve jobs career and i know this is a fact now we can see it on video but i knew it as a fact because i talked to people who knew him he was terribly nervous about public speaking. And there's an old video uh, from the late 1970s where he's giving a television interview, and it is on YouTube. He's having a full-blown panic attack mm -hmm. uh, bef before the cameras start rolling. Mm -hmm. He was a very nervous, tentative public speaker. But over years of applying himself and practicing, he got not only got over or managed that fear of public speaking, he became the world's greatest corporate presenter, the best story, business storyteller of all time. But we can also use Warren Buffett as an example. Now, Warren Buffett has publicly said very openly that he was terrified of public speaking. But he realized, and this again applies to each and every one of you who's listening to this podcast, he realized that in order for him to connect with customers and potential clients and to attract clients to his business, he was a stock, he was a broker at the time, that he had to get comfortable speaking to people and talking in front of groups, especially, even small groups. Uh, he was so terrified, he was terrified of getting up and saying his name in a public speaking course. So he signed up for a public speaking course, true story, Warren Buffett signs up for a Dale Carnegie course uh -huh. and does not go to the first meeting because he was too nervous to stand up and say his name. And to this day, I saw a documentary on Warren Buffett in his office 
The only degree that he has is a public speaking degree. His MBAs and all that are in the hallway. So he said that if you are a great speaker, that it will increase your value as a professional by 50% instantly. Mm. So don't take my word for it. Billionaire Warren Buffett knows what he's talking about. (laughs) That's great. Well, Carmen, I think we'll go through in this conversation a few elements that I think people can include in their talks that will make them a lot more confident. But is there anything, so like, for example, we mentioned Steve Jobs and, you know, we mentioned Warren Buffett and Steve Jobs' speech that really stands out to me is the commencement speech that he gave at Stanford, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was pretty close before he passed away. Um, That really stands out. It's like, man, this guy seems like, you know, he's the best of the best when it comes to public speaking. Beyond well, that, let's let's talk about the neuroscience of public speaking. Then, okay, I'm yeah. going to use you as an example. Yeah, you said that the what stands out to you is Steve Jobs' commencement address at Stanford University. Yes, that's okay. That is considered one of the great commencement speeches of all time. Uh-huh. CNN International did a little mini documentary on the greatest speeches of all time, mm-hmm. and they contacted me to give a little blurb you know, a few quotes on that speech. Yep. So they consider that speech one of the greatest speeches of all time. Okay, so you tell me, I don't want to put you on the spot, is there anything that you remember? What's the easiest thing you remember from that speech? Uh, let's see. Well, I remember why he was- did, why, why did, It doesn't have to be specific, but why, did it, why do you recall it? I remember it having some emotional elements that were- inspiring. Mm-hmm. I remember him being at a podium. Yep. Um, I, rem- I, I don't, I could you, be you wrong remember about this. emotion. You remember emotion. Yeah. You remember. Okay. This is the point that okay. I'm always trying to make. And I do this and talk like Ted, uh, in order for you to persuade another person of anything, do business with me, uh, purchase this particular uh, service or, or, or tool or, or, in, or insurance feature. In order for me to persuade you, Aristotle talked about this 2000 years ago. I need to have three things. Three things have to be part of our persuasive conversation. One is making an appeal to your logic, making a rational appeal to reason. Uh, you, you have a problem, I have a solution, if you solve your problem, you will be happy. I have a solution, therefore I will make you happy. You know, just okay. basic, here's your problem, here's my Very solution. Very logical. Logical. You have to have that. Uh, so to me, those are the facts, the information about your insurance product. Here's what it does, mm-hmm. here's how it works. I also have to have what's called ethos, which means credibility. Well, Steve Jobs had credibility at that time because he had already been the uh, the CEO of Apple and the founder of Apple. So instant credibility. But you also have to have emotion. And a lot of people still don't understand that. So even Aristotle 2000 years ago said, if you cannot make an emotional connection with people, it's almost impossible to persuade them to do anything, Mm -hmm. to, (laughs) to take any action. So the way Steve Jobs did it, now go back, Pat, and you'll see this. He told three stories from his life. Okay. You remember one of the first things he said was, well, I'm just here to tell you three stories, just three simple stories about love, loss, and death. 
And one of those stories was about uh, connecting the dots, looking backwards. He took calligraphy at Reed College, not knowing what calligraphy would ever mean in his life, if anything. He just pursued it because he was passionate about it. That calligraphy became the first typography in Macintosh. So the reason why we have interesting fonts now and typography and all of that beautiful publishing text is because Steve Jobs applied calligraphy to computers. That's fascinating. And, but that's a story. So if you mm -hmm. read that transcript of the Steve Jobs commencement address, you'll find very little, almost no technical information. They're just stories. That's why Steve Jobs was a storyteller. And that's why you like it. And that's why you remember it. Mm -hmm. You're not always going to remember facts, figures, data, statistics. We need those to support our arguments. But if you're not a storyteller first, it's nearly impossible to make an emotional connection with people. It makes a lot of sense. I, I remember looking back at that video and just feeling the emotion. Was he diagnosed with cancer prior to that talk as well? Yes. He was, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, unfortunately, I thought he was in uh, remission, and so yeah. it uh, came back quickly, unfortunately. Yeah. I think it surprised a lot of people. Wow, okay. Well, Carmine, in your book, Talk Like Ted, you do some serious scientific analysis on TED Talks in general, and if you could describe for the audience like what a TED Talk is, first of all, because I, I know most people have heard of them, but in case mm -hmm. anyone hasn't heard of them, what a TED Talk is, and then what you did to analyze the best elements of these presentations. Yeah, so let's give people one caveat about this that's very important. Uh, I did not write Talk Like Ted so that you would have all of the tools and resources to give a TED Talk. TED Talks are a conference. So there's a national TED Talk, which if you go to TED.com, it's an annual conference that brings together some of the great thought leaders of the world to give these 18-minute talks on a variety of subjects. That's the national one. A lot of the videos that you folks see on, on the internet are called TEDx, and those are related sibling sister conferences related to TED, but that are put on all over the world. There's TEDx conferences every day. Not all the videos are online, uh, but many of them are, but they're called TEDx. So they're typically shorter. They're uh, focused on uh, maybe medicine or healthcare or climate change, you know, one topic for the day and all these different speakers. Those are called TEDx. So TED is a conference. Here's the point. For 30 years, the TED conference has been growing in popularity, and now there are billions of views of those TED speeches. Those TED speakers, the speakers who speak at these conferences, are among the best public speakers in the world. And the TED conference works with these speakers, even though they're already really good, uh, because I've talked to a lot of them. They work with them to improve their public speaking. Mm. So here we've got this amazing opportunity for every one of us to become better speakers, because through the magic of the internet, we can now download or, or stream videos from the great speakers at our fingertips. This really is the golden age of learning. So if you want to become a better public speaker, you're not just gonna read about it in my book. Now you can watch these great TED Talks and you can understand what went on behind the scenes.
How did they prepare for the TED Talks? So I not only have been watching TED Talks for years and writing about them for some of the platforms I write for, uh, but I've also interviewed some of the best uh, TED speakers of all time, like Brian Stevenson, who's a human rights attorney. He's given one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. His, uh, he was turned into, well, his experience was turned into a movie with uh, Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx called Just Mercy. Uh, so he talked to me a lot about how he goes about public speaking and what the TED conference meant to him. But the big point is, this is what you can learn from the great public speakers in the world. It's not whether or not you're ever going to give a TED talk. That is completely uh, beyond the point of the book. If anybody has any doubts about what you're saying as well, going to YouTube and looking at some of these TED Talks, you can see the amount of views and the amount of interactions on them. So it's it's immediate validity to all of yeah. the concepts that you're bringing up. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, and the TED Talks, because their viewership is so high, most people are familiar now with either TED Talks or they are familiar with very specific talks that I bring up. So in my keynotes and my lectures, workshops, I'll bring up a particular TED Talk or I will ask people for their favorite TED Talks and they'll bring up one and I'll tell them, I'll analyze it for them. Here's why you like it or here's what you remember from it. Because Pat, this brings up a much bigger point. When you start understanding the neuroscience of persuasion and communication and storytelling, you understand how the human brain works, which is why I spend a lot of time in behavioral psychology I, I, and cognitive psychology. When you understand how the human mind works, it's easier for you to create content and uh, articulate your message in a way that people will ultimately remember. Because the human brain hasn't changed that much at all, actually, for hundreds of thousands of years. The tools we use for communication have changed. Mm -hmm. Aristotle didn't have podcasting and Zoom mm -hmm. or PowerPoint, but the very foundation of persuasion that he laid out is still the foundation that we use today. Tell a story, keep it simple. Uh, th those are all the basic building blocks that you still see today, whether it's TED or any other presentation. Yeah, I wanted people to have an understanding of the credibility that you're bringing to the table. And if they weren't familiar with TED, understanding how that works and also the fact that after this, they can go, look at all these TED Talks and figure out exactly what you're referencing. I wanna give the audience an idea of like the best way to think about crafting their next presentation. And yeah. I think the, the structure that I read about in Talk Like De TED has to do with making sure you're telling a story, including three major agenda items and having one takeaway that people are gonna be able to remember. Is that how we should think about the structure of the ideal very, presentation? Very good, Pat. You, the, those are the two <laughs> most important things. They, they really are. Okay, so the first thing is, let's talk about the main takeaway. One okay. main takeaway. Uh, John Medina is a molecular biologist and he's sort of been a mentor of mine. I, I, I know of him, we've talked read his books. He wrote a famous book called Brain Rules, a very popular book years ago. And he studies how the brain processes information. So many, many years ago, he taught me this. It's an evolutionary thing. He said, when our ancestors 
who were roaming the, the uh, savanna in tribes ran into a lion or a tiger, depending on what country they were in. When they ran into a tiger, they did not ask, how many teeth does the tiger have? They asked, will it eat me? Should I run? So your brain makes instant connections to the big picture. That's why you have a headline in a newspaper. It's called the funnel. When I went to journalism school, we learned it. You know, it's the funnel writing. Mm. You start big and then you draw down into the details. What is the one thing that I need to know? Okay. Uh, yep. infl uh, price uh, inflation is uh, rising, soaring prices because of inflation at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the next time I go to the grocery store, the prices will be higher. If that's all I know, that gives me plenty of information. And then the rest of the article can talk about what are the triggers of inflation? How long will inflation last? Well, how did this come? What percentage inflation? But if that's all I know is that prices are rising at the grocery store, that's the big picture. Yeah. That's called headline. Every, everything falls under that category. Do right. the same thing with presentations. Don't bury the headline in the middle of your presentation or conversation. So if you're in, a, in the insurance industry and you're talking to a client or a prospect, what what is the, give me one reason to work for to work with you. One reason why you should be my insurance broker. Mm -hmm. The number one reason, or if you're trying to sell a particular financial product, what is the one thing that it's going to do for me? Mm -hmm. One overarching thing. I like the way you Not talk 12. about this as well, because you even limit in your book to, I think you relate it to a tweet. So like 140 characters or less, or maybe even shorter than that. It's just gotta, it's gotta hit. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm glad you brought up the whole tweet. Yes, 140 characters, not 240, like the new version of Twitter, 140. Uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, what I noticed about, if you go to the TED Talks, every single TED headline, every single headline or name of the talk can easily fit within a tweet of 140 characters or less. And there's a reason for that. Now, they started doing that before Twitter, but the point is, that you need to give me the big picture first and make it short. Short enough that I can remember, that I can recall it, and that I can share it with other people. So in, in one sentence, what is it that I'm going to learn? What is it that I'm going uh, to gain out of this conversation? Let's say I'm starting out with putting my presentation together. I think a very natural inclination for most people is to immediately go to PowerPoint and be like, well, what slides should I put together? That doesn't sound like it's the right place to start. Where should people start in the very beginning creative process for coming up with their content? The very first thing is don't open PowerPoint if you're giving a presentation. Uh, you can deliver a presentation using PowerPoint um, or Canva now, some great presentation tools or Google Slides. I'm okay with slides. The point is that you need to understand your story first. And that's why, you know, I, I like using old fashioned yellow pad or a whiteboard. What is the one thing that you want your audience to know? That's the first thing. And then you can start actually sketching 
just like a, a film director does. They, they sketch scenes. You can sort of start drawing out the form of your presentation first because slides simply should complement your presentation. They don't replace your presentation. That's why when you have 100 words on a slide, like I've been seeing lately, which is truly awful and frightening, yep. but when you have too many words on a slide, that's a document. It's not a presentation. Mm -hmm. It's just a document. So always make sure that you have the big picture first. That doesn't mean yeah, I don't have to open PowerPoint for that. Um, as we were talking, I just went to TED.com just so I can help people understand what this means by the big picture. Okay. okay. If I look at some of the more recent videos uh, or TED Talks that have come up, and by the time this runs, they could be different. These are just the newest ones. Uh, I already know that in one sentence, they're going to tell you what you need to know and why you should watch this video. So there's one, one of the more popular ones is how to deal with your insomnia and finally get to sleep. Okay, in one sentence, I know if that relates to me or not. Very direct. Very direct. Uh, a new way to help young people with their mental health. Okay, so I, I, knew, I know it's mental health, young people, and there's something new from the research. Good, what is it? Uh, let's learn more. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then here's one that's gonna get to our next point. Three ways to lower the barrier to higher education three ways to lower the barriers to higher ed. Okay, so again, all of these, if you look at the consistency, do this for yourself. Go on TED.com, look at the most popular talks. Not one of them, not one, will have a headline that's over 140 characters. They're all easy to tweet, to share, because in one sentence, I need to know why should I get involved emotionally in the rest of this conversation. If you're in the insurance industry, I'm busy. You're gonna take 20 minutes of my time or more? For what? Oh, because I'm going to give you um, the, a, a feature or a product or something new that's going to improve your life mm -hmm. uh, or give you financial security. Ah, okay, terrific. Right. Let me hear more. Yeah. Or why should I work with you? Out of every uh, financial advisor or insurance advisor out there, why you? What do you uniquely bring to the table? Mm -hmm. Why should I listen to you? Why should I do business to you for you? This is really hard, Pat. Uh, the, coming up with the one thing that your audience needs to know is hard. Yeah, that yeah. takes work. That's why you see so many bad presentations because they're, <laughs> right. they're rambling. It's like, I'm uh -huh. just gonna put in all the information I can. There's no rhyme or reason. Uh -huh. There's no structure to it. I'm just gonna throw out a lot of information. Well, with no structure, that's why we get bored, uh, frankly, or uh, presentations are lackluster because they just don't have any structure to them. Yeah. Now you, me you mentioned the rule of thir uh, thirds, you said, like th give me three items. I can't give you one headline and leave it at that. Okay, the headline is the hook. That gives you the reason to listen to the rest of our conversation. I think at the beginning of this podcast, you said, uh, hey, here's Carmine Gallo, we're gonna talk about public speaking, how to be a better communicator. Yeah, okay, it's great. If I, if I think I need that skill, I wanna listen to this podcast. 
you you did that almost intuitively because you've been doing videos and podcasts for a while. You understand yeah. it. Big picture first. Now we'll get into the details. You didn't start with, and today we're going to talk to Carmine Gallo about talking like Ted. Okay, no, you didn't. It's about public speaking, communications, talk like Ted supports the headline. The rule of thirds simply means that in short-term memory, we can only take away three or four key ideas. Support your headline with three or four supporting points, not 28. So if you go to TED Talks, you will find that a lot of them are broken up into threes. Three ways to get better help. Three ways to lower barriers to higher education, which I see here. Uh, oh, there's another one. I'm just on one page. Three questions to build resilience. Mm. Three questions to ask yourself to be more resilient. I th they do this intuitively. This is not written in stone. They do, but people do this intuitively. Good speakers do it intuitively. They know that in 18 or 20 minutes, I can only get a, across so much information. So I'm going to make sure you you take away three or four points, not 28 or 32. That's too. That's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And and it's probably a lot easier for the presenter to remember when it's broken down into just three points. So it's kind of an advantage as well. You know, everything is broken up into three. But when you start doing the research, it's amazing. Uh, the, the power of three, and this is across culture, across uh, languages, we just intuitively think in threes. Our concept, right? Our mm -hmm. Declaration of Independence is uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's not 28 unalienable rights. It's three. Uh, you know, there's three little pigs and three musketeers and three three wishes that the land grants <laughs> that, that the genie grants Aladdin. Three. So three is actually a very powerful number. And when you tell people, I've got three things that I want to leave with you today. You better have three things because they are going to want to know what mm -hmm. is the third. What is mm -hmm. what's oh, the third yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah, it makes total sense. And since since I uh, read your book, I've I've been incorporating that into uh, a lot of the talks that I've had to give. And I also totally understand the concept of simplicity and condensing down a topic into uh, terms that someone could understand. You know, almost if like you're describing something to a child. We just had a cyber sales academy for cyber insurance for a lot of brokers that we work with. And the whole idea was based around simplicity because, you know, these brokers and, and people that, you know, if you want your presentation to be influential and be passed on, people have to have that, that um, simplistic headline with the, you know, um, really concise backup points to be able to effectively talk about it to someone else. You know what I'm saying? So I, I totally understand. And w when you get to the concept of slides eventually, I thought you had a great rule in there as well. And that rule was not to use more than 40 words on the first 10 slides. I think that's a great rule for people to uh, utilize when they're putting slides together. So you see how there there is an in-between, between 100 words on a, on a slide that I've been seeing lately, and I'm not exaggerating, I counted, there's 100, mm -hmm. or one word that Steve Jobs used to put on the slide. There's an easier in between those two opposites. I'm not suggesting that you only have one or two words on a slide to do a Steve Jobs type of presentation. Uh, that's, a, that's a little contrived. It's for a big audience, it's for a public 
product launch. But you don't want 100 words, okay? So here's how I figured this out. There are, uh, some of the research shows that the average PowerPoint has about 40 words. Well, if you watch either a Steve Jobs presentation or other great presentations on TED and other platforms, ones that are considered real standout presentations that have gone viral, that have attracted a lot of views, you'll find that they don't get to 40 words till an average of about 10 slides in. So why are you putting 40 words on one slide? Some of the best yeah. presentations don't hit 40 for 10 slides. Yeah. So I have found that is just a good exercise because one of the things we didn't talk about is I work directly with CEOs and executives from many of the world's largest brands, companies that touch your life every single day. In fact, we're using some of the technology from some of the companies whose executives I've worked with. So the point is that when we are preparing for really important mission critical presentations, we do this exercise and it really helps. Let's try to get through the first part of the presentation by only using 40 words in the first 10 slides. Boom. What that does is it forces you, it's a forcing mechanism. It forces you to be more creative. It forces you to come up with a one big idea uh, and maybe three supporting points with a story that reinforce, if I'm telling you a story, I can show you a picture, an image, a video, a graphic, but why do I need to have text on the slide when I'm telling you a story? So it's a forcing mechanism that forces you to be more creative. Yep, that's outstanding. That is an immediate takeaway that people can begin applying um, to all of their slides when they're creating them after they've come up with the story agenda item and uh, agenda items and the big takeaway. Another item I really, really liked was the idea of the jaw dropping moment. And you give an example of Bill Gates in a Ted talk, unleashing mosquitoes into the crowd as a jaw dropping moment. Can you talk about uh, that specific example with Bill Gates and how people can work in jaw dropping moments into their presentations? Well, Bill Gates, too, fascinating, is uh, a student of communication. Uh, so he wrote a whole book that came out in uh, 21 earlier on uh, climate change. And in the first few pages of the book, he says, I'm trying to simplify the complexity of climate change. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you write and speak in a way that people will understand? Uh, so when we saw the, I call it the, uh, the mosquito moment, and this became one of the most uh, famous TED Talks of all time. It's Bill Gates talking about the subject of malaria. Now, that's a serious subject, and there's death and illness involved. Uh, so it's a downer of a subject. And yet, he was able to take this one moment and make it real and vivid and a little humorous too, which is surprising. It's a surprising moment in such a downer of a presentation. And what he does is he said, well, and as all, all of you know, malaria is spread by mosquitoes. I happen to bring some mosquitoes here. And then he opened a jar, a, a jar where you could see mosquitoes. He opened the jar and he said, let's let the mosquitoes fly around the auditorium while I'm speaking. And then he let the mosquitoes out. Everybody <laughs> I'm sure is freaking well, out. Listen, you have to watch the video because you'll appreciate what happens to the audience. Uh -huh. First, no one says a thing because it's, it's 
surprising. Yeah. Uh, That's called a surprising or jaw-dropping moment, is the moment you move away from your slides and you do something completely unexpected. And so everyone just kind of sits there and, and no one says a word. And then he says, hey, it's not just poor people who should have the experience of this. And so he brought it to life because malaria is a, uh, an illness in mostly poor, undeveloped countries. And so people realized that they were part of that joke, like, hey, I'm talking to this elite audience. It's not just the poor people who should have the experience. And then he said, and those mosquitoes are not infected, so calm down. You know, he, <laughs> yeah. But what happened to the audience was shock, no, quiet, And then they kind of giggled because they realized that they knew they were in on the joke. And then they started laughing and then they started cheering. Wow. And that was the most memorable moment of that particular presentation. And I I went back into the newspaper headlines of that year uh, or of that day and, you know, TMZ and all, you know, all of the uh, more popular press was totally covering it. You won't believe what Bill Gates did at a TED talk. But that's what people remember. Mm -hmm. There's a bigger point here. I call it the mosquito moment, and obviously I'm not suggesting you do something that radical or or crazy. I, I, I understand it was for a TED Talk. Here's the point. People remember the unexpected. People remember the one moment that is surprising. Mm-hmm. Unexpected. Uh, that's called in the neuroscience literature novelty. We are novelty seekers. So if you present a, a PowerPoint presentation that is all text and bullet points, that looks exactly like everybody else, you're not grabbing my attention. Show me a demo. Tell me a story that will bring it all to life. Something interesting, unexpected, engaging. It can be on a slide, it can be off a slide. Maybe it's a short video that brings it all together or a customer story. Those are all elements of novelty, but something that is unexpected or engaging. And ever since I wrote about that and talked like Ted, I've been doing a lot more research into this, Pat. And it is true, people do not remember every point of your conversation. They will not remember every slide. They remember what are called moments, moments. And so the best speakers will intentionally create those moments ahead of time. The slides complement the moment, but it's the moment that's created ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Can I give you one example that's a lot simpler? Absolutely. Uh, Again, we'll get back to Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs was the greatest corporate storyteller to this day. Still, I've found a few that have elements of Steve Jobs, but he had the whole package. Okay. Uh, The most popular business presentation of all time, and you can look it up, was the iPhone presentation of 2007 when Steve Jobs first introduced the iPhone. And what did he do? He came out and he said, Apple has three new products to introduce today. Three, Pat, remember the rule of three. Three, three new products. Uh, we have a, a, um, a new phone, a new iPod, and a new device that helps you communicate with the internet. We call it an internet communication device. So a new iPod, a new phone, and a new internet communicator. And then he paused and he repeated it. And he repeated it again, like two or three times. An iPod, a phone an internet communicator. And then finally he said, aren't you getting it? 
These aren't three new products from Apple. It's one device, and we call it the iPhone. Everyone cheers. The audience erupts in applause. And to this day, that is the clip that's on YouTube, that's constantly circulated, that's gone viral. That was the most impressive part of that presentation. Why is it that nobody else ever talks about the other 90 minutes of that presentation? It was a great presentation, but there's another 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. People talk about that because it was surprising. So to me, Pat, it doesn't, it's not just like doing something physical um, or a big demo. Sometimes it's just how you package the information, packaging material in a way that's surprising. Yeah. It's different. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about three products. Oh, it's all in one? Oh my gosh, that's so much fun. That's interesting. Tell me more. That's an iconic way to to think about it. And and I think that's a really simplistic way to, at least for me, to understand how to build that into different presentations. And it's also exciting because you know that's the point where you're going to get the reaction, you know? Uh, But Pat, you know, going back to what we've talked about before, I did not purposely say this at the beginning of our conversation because I don't want to scare away our listeners. This takes work. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this is create. It's called creativity. Yeah. So that means you actually have to think through it. The reason why most PowerPoints are bad and most presentations are boring is quite simply no one really thinks through it ahead of time. They just open PowerPoint and start adding material on the slide. There's no thinking, there's no creativity, there's no structure, there's no narrative, there's no storytelling. It's just a transfer of information on a document. Right. You got to put the work in. No doubt. The creativity. It's art in a lot of ways. That's why every time I talk about public speaking or communication, I always talk about the art and the science of communication. Because we've been talking about the science, the neuroscience of persuasion. But... There's an art to it, which is why every movie has a structure. I talk about this, uh, I think I've talked about this in TED. Every movie has a structure. It's called the three-act structure. Almost every single movie that you watch has a structure. And yet they're all different. So you can have a structure and still leave room for creativity. Carmine, you did a lot of analysis into the pace and tone of the best TED Talks. And a lot of that information was really surprising to me. Can you talk about the ideal pace and ideal tone that someone should be speaking with when giving a presentation? Oh, well, what's interesting about that, Pat, is that that's changed a little bit with the move to more remote and virtual Mm. presentations. Ah, okay. So we have to talk about this. This is something that most people do not think about, uh, nor do they... Uh, read about that often in business books, but it's something that I've had to live with because for 15 years, I was a television journalist. I was a TV anchor for most of that time. We learn how to speak. We take vocal lessons. So everything is taught to us. Vocal intonation, pace, uh, tone, style, there's a, there are a lot of things about delivery that people should know, but let me just identify the top ones. Uh, one is think about your pace. A presentation is not is is a contrived conversation. It's not a conversation like 
me and Pat sitting at a bar having a beer and just you know talking about the day. That's very different. We would do we would have a love a lot of filler words. Um, uh, uh, you know, we'd, we'd pause a lot and then maybe we'd ramble on and on and on. We'd, we'd speak really fast. A presentation is more contrived. So it has to be a little clearer and simpler and easier to follow, which is why in a good presentation, you have to slow down your rate of speech. It's not as fast as it would be in a natural conversation. So some people speak really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I watch them on CNBC. Some guests talk really, really fast. I can hardly keep up. Yeah. Uh, and then there are others that slow down, especially when they're delivering the key message. Okay. And so th- that to me is someone that, that reflects someone who has actually thought through pacing. Yeah. You know, two examples so, that stand out to me, Carmen, I'm yeah, curious your thoughts on them. I, I like presidents like, you know, Obama, I think, is always thrown out as a great speaker. And uh-huh. it seems like he talks at a really, really slow pace compared to most. Like, you brought up the example mm. in the book of Tony Robbins, who speaks yeah. at, like, an incredible pace, right? right. Where he, he, it's like he's off the charts in terms of how many words he's getting in per minute. Is, is there a balance between the two that we should shoot for? Maybe it's not, you know, as fast as yeah. you're sitting with your best friend, but maybe it's a little bit faster than... And then I went, you know, where it's just dramatically slow. There is, there is a, uh, there is a balance. I get away from using, you know, I think in talk like Ted, when I first wrote it, I was uh, focused on uh, the number of words that people deliver per minute. I was focused on that until I realized, uh, see, this is what I mean by communication is constantly learning, Pat. I mean, I I can write a book and then two years later realize that maybe there's a better way of explaining it Mm -hmm. because you have to constantly learn about communication. So when you just focus on the rate of words, it's really hard for people to understand, Mm -hmm. really hard to get. Uh, So I've just sort of started looking at uh, thinking about it as a natural conversation, but it's a little slower. There's one person in particular that I think you should watch, and we mentioned him. That's uh, Brian Stevenson. Okay. So Brian Stevenson is a human rights attorney who not only gave a popular TED Talk, but he also argues cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. And what you'll see is a, a variation of pace. That's the most important thing. I see. Don't get too hooked on how fast I should speak. Vary the pace. Sometimes when you are delivering uh, the key message, slow it down. Okay. Pause in between breaths every once in a while. Then you can also speed it up. If you're telling a story, if you're telling a funny story, you can sort of speed it up a little bit and talk a little faster like I'm doing now. But when I'm about to deliver that key message, pause, slow it down, and vary your pace. Okay. Do you hear how I'm doing that? I can speed up, I can slow down. This is an advanced skill we're talking about. It helps to put yourself on video or record yourself in a conversation. By varying the pace of your your speaking uh, style, it will be more engaging, more interesting. I also think that when we're speaking virtually, it does help to slow it down even more because we freeze, mm-hmm. right? The, the video will freeze, it gets out of uh, 
It's not coordinated with your mouth anymore. Yeah. And it's very hard for people to concentrate on Zoom anyway. So when I give any kind of presentation on Zoom, I like to slow down my pace just a little bit, even more so than I would be delivering a presentation in person. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you clarified because again, like I think just kind of naturally in different sales pitches, I've kind of gotten used to doing that, but for larger presentations as well, I think um, that could be really valuable. And I think a lot of it is just making sure you're like expressing the clarity of that major takeaway. Yeah, and also here's the one thing about delivery that I think will, will help everybody. And it's something I've been writing about for long, for the last couple of years. I'm working on it myself. I'm not an expert on this myself, but it's very important. We have to eliminate the filler words. And I was not always great at that because I've got a little ADD. So my mind is racing. I'm two or three steps ahead. I've got a lot of content I want to talk about. So I have to purposely train myself and it helps that I've seen myself on video to eliminate those filler words. Uh, uh, uh -huh. uh, those are words that you're just using to fill in that empty space because we're afraid of empty space. So there's, um, um, and, uh, oh, you do a lot of that and that gets really annoying. Mm -hmm. Listen to a good sportscaster, uh, calling a football game or calling one of your favorite sports. Most of the time, the, the folks who are at the top, they're really, really good. And they can call a three-hour football game, and you'll hardly hear a filler word because they're they're intentional about what they're going to say next. They think through it for a second, and then they deliver it. Here's some color commentary on that last play. They don't use filler words to fill in that empty space while they're thinking. This is an advanced skill. It takes time, put yourself on video, but it's easy to do once you're uh, intentional. And once you realize what you, how much, how many filler words you're using, the other one that's driving me crazy, and I listen, I hear this on CNBC all the time because I've got it on in the background during the business day, and I'll hear analysts and economists who are guests, and they all say, right, right, right. So we've got inflation, uh, right, and that means that prices are going up, uh, right, and you've got uh, uh, the COVID. Um, uh, now the new variant, uh, right? Please stop. stop. Just deliver the information without saying right, right, right. I don't. You're the expert, not me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure from your perspective, after analyzing so many of these talks, these words just must stand yeah. out to you. And I, I will say, in my analysis of my employees and different folks I've worked with, a lot of people, it's, it's. It's not necessarily just the ums and the uhs, but it's just specific words that they they consistently say. Even myself, I know I have it, but using that camera is totally eye-opening when you see how you're coming off and you just notice certain things, certain, certain yeah. habits. We all have those go-to phrases and we have those certain habits too. I use, I, I, I'm sure I've brought this up today. Uh, maybe I have it. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to do that all the time. Maybe I did that today. Uh -huh. But you bring up a good point. 
you have to practice. So how do you practice? The best way is to put yourself on video. And now video is at the tip of your fingertips with your phone. phone. Seriously. Set it up, put it on a tripod. The next time you're giving a virtual meeting or you're having a conversation with a client, record, press record. Yep. Watch it back. The reason why uh, someone like you, Pat, you're better than average, obviously, as a communicator, is probably because, and again, I, I don't know you from the past, I don't know how you were before, but by seeing yourself on these Zoom videos, you catch things now. You're starting to catch habits or certain words or phrases that are overused. You, you understand how to come across better uh, because you're doing these podcasts. The best thing to do is record yourself, put yourself on video or audio, and listen to yourself and you will catch 90% of the faults that you have. It's so funny. Some of those annoying habits. It's so funny you say that, Karma, because it has been a journey for me and really interesting using the podcasting format to see how I'm coming off, what I'm saying consistently. I've also had the benefit of doing a lot of sales training for my employees and Mm -hmm. analyzing a lot of what they're doing and you know, it's a lot of that stuff when you're talking about crush words or you're t- talking about habits or you're talking about somebody's presence in a room, when you talk about hand motions and when you talk about true entertainment, right? Because that, right. that's the type of person I want to be presenting to me, a true entertainer. How can we get from just kind of throwing up information to leaving someone being like, wow, that guy was amazing? That's why all of these things matter. I like to tell executives who I work with, you're not giving a presentation, you're a storyteller. You are the storyteller in chief of this organization. And in order for me to get you hooked into a story, the way it's structured has a lot to do with it. The visuals that I show have a lot to do with it. And so does the way I deliver that story. So your vocal delivery, your what we call executive presence, your body language, the smile on your face, the looking into the camera or making eye contact, all of those things matter, yep. especially to telling a great story. And those things can be improved. Everything we're talking about, every aspect of communication is something that people can sharpen. And I've seen it. I have seen these amazing transformations that have been made in executives who I've worked with or people who just study communication and are more aware and intentional about it. People go from being uh, below average or poor speakers to being transformational. I'm glad you brought that up because it's so inspiring. I won't bring up up the name because who knows uh, how people think about these things these days, but I know a, um, a pastor, I know a pastor who was terrified of public speaking and was always behind the scenes. And today he fills stadiums, stadiums of 40,000 people. That's awesome. Uh, and he told me point blank, I was terrified of public speaking. And my first two years, I, I was, it was awful, shaking every time I was in front of 10 people. Now he fills stadiums. The point is anyone can transform themselves into an extraordinary speaker. Yeah, but it takes it takes some practice and it it takes being intentional about it. 
thinking about the way you present your ideas. Carmine, I was going to ask you to expand on that because I think so many of the things you have given today are helping add confidence to anyone who's listening to this when they talk about, talk about, or we think when they think about the specific elements that they're going to include in a talk, which makes me more confident at least, but let's just say someone has all these elements and they're practicing a lot. Is there any other techniques that you know that would help somebody overcome that feeling of nervous nervousness before they're about to go on stage? Absolutely. There's a very well-known uh, strategy that I've been writing about and thinking about for the last couple of years and speaking to psychologists about as well. The strategy is the same strategy that a field goal kicker uses to practice field goals under pressure. So if you're familiar with, I'm sure you're probably a football fan and you watch those last minute field goals, how do they do it? It's like the, 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 the game is on the line and it's, it's, you're either going to make the playoffs or not, or you're going to the Super Bowl or not based on your field goal from just, just within your, uh, the, the, the furthest you can kick it, right? Just within there. Yeah. You can kick a 51-yard field goal. This is a 49, and it's uh, and there are 100,000 people screaming for you to miss. Okay. How do you practice that? How, how do you deal with the nerves? So the best field goal kickers do what's called stress practice. Okay. They they not only practice, but they practice under conditions that in some way s simulate real-world conditions. That's why if you go to a practice field, they're blaring noise out of the loudspeaker. Yep. They've got all sorts of distractions behind the field goal in practice. Right. I've even seen where their, their team is almost acting as the crowd trying to mess with them. Yeah, exactly. So that when it gets to that situation, it's not exactly like it, but they've been through it before. Why does Phil Mickelson, the golfer, practice three-foot putts and he has to make 100 in a row. I'm a golfer. If I made 10 in a row, I'd be happy. So I've started doing that. You know, I'm going to make 10. He does 100. And if he misses one, he has to start over again. Why does he do that? To put himself under those situations where when the tournament is on the line and there's a three-foot putt, your hands start shaking. No matter who you are, your hands start shaking. And you miss the putt. They never miss three-foot putts in practice, but these ch even champions miss three-foot putts when the tournament is on the line because they're not used to being in that situation. That's why it's always easy to say that if someone is not used to being the leader in the leaderboard in, the, in day four of a golf tournament, they may not be there because they're not used to that situation. And the champion is. The point is they practice under stress. I've talked to neuroscientists about this. You have to practice under conditions that will create a little stress. So here's the, here's the secret, Pat. We have to practice presentations under a little stress Okay. in front of people. How about two peers? How about some friends? Put yourself on a Zoom meeting or open Zoom. You don't even have to do this in front of people. Open Zoom and practice and record yourself and watch it back. If you're giving a presentation, you can't go back. You have to go through it from start to finish. 
record yourself. Even if you flub it, even if you flub it, you, you can't go back. You got to go through the whole thing. And if you flub it, you got to start again. You got to create these conditions that put you under just a little stress. It doesn't mean it's going to be exact, but it's going to be a little stressful. If that's all you do is flip through some slides that you've created and think to yourself quietly that uh, the ideas that you're going to present, and then you're in front of real people, or you're on a Zoom call, or you're in front of a group, yeah, you're going to get nervous because you haven't practiced this at all. You have not practiced your presentation. And that's why we get nervous about public speaking, because we don't do it. People don't do this very often, especially in the workplace. They're not presenting three times a day. If you were, one year later, you would not be as nervous. But you don't do that. You do it in a great while, and you don't practice ahead of time. Of course, you're nervous. It's understandable, and it's okay. But of course, you're nervous because you haven't really practiced for the event. That's excellent advice. I'd also say like, I mean, the folks that you're going to ask to witness the presentation, I, cause I've done this in the past when I've had to give big talks, I've, you know, practiced on my team or even roommates or friends and nobody's ever said no, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like you're putting right. someone out, at least that in the, it's been my experience in the past. They're actually kind of excited to hear what you're going to do. They feel like they're kind of getting in on something and then, and then also having the platform for them to give you feedback mm -hmm. is so important too. And that's why Steve Jobs would practice with people in an auditorium and he would ask for feedback. It's okay yeah. to ask for feedback. What was not as clear as it could be? Mm -hmm. uh, what didn't you understand? Can I change a line here? Can I change this slide? Was I rambling? Was it too long, too short? Mm -hmm. Can I give you a little behind the scenes uh, anecdote of MDRT, which was the million dollar round table yes, please. for financial professionals? Uh, it is a huge conference and they have thousands of people from all over the world. When I was first, I've, I've spoken at MDRT conferences twice, one virtual, unfortunately, I don't like the virtual one, but then I, there was one in New Orleans that was in person and that was pre-COVID, obviously. Be, when they first hired me to be a speaker, uh, when they first contacted me, they wanted me to go through rehearsal. And I thought to myself, well, okay, I, I'll do it because you're the organizer of the event and I'll do it, but why do I need rehearsal? I loved it. It really helped me because it was a 10,000 person event in a stadium-like place in New Orleans. So now you're talking about speaking in, t in front of 10,000 people on a huge stage at a stadium event. That's very different than even speaking to 2,000 or 200. Yeah, very impressive. It's very different. And so they, want, they took me through rehearsals. First, I had to speak. I had to give the entire presentation to a small group. Okay. They gave me feedback. Then I had to rehearse on stage at the location. Okay. I later, it gave me more confidence and it helped me. So I own the stage. I, you know, I think it's on YouTube. I, I could work the stage now and I can talk to different parts of the auditorium. I, I came alive. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I had already been there. Yeah. So I came out and yeah, there were more people there. I, d I just did the same thing. 
because I had just rehearsed it the day before. And I went out there earlier that day and I, I was comfortable. Muscle memory. It was a practice. Muscle memory. And so I, I appreciated it, even though at the time I thought, well, why, why do I need to go through this? No, you actually do. You need to practice. You need to get feedback. Uh, and, and you need to practice in real world conditions as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Put yourself under a li- a neuroscientist calls to put yourself under a little stress. Yeah, Phil Mickelson making those hundred uh, three foot putts. Yeah, I mean, he missed. He has to go back. Uh, just add a little stress so that you really have to deliver this well. Carmine, you mentioned that the ideal amount of presentation time is about eighteen minutes for uh, the average person's attention span. A lot of times. We ha- there's, there's folks out there that'll be like, oh yeah, we'll give you an hour to do this presentation. Yeah. If, I'm gonna, if I'm trying to keep someone <laughs> captivated and excited for the full hour, is there ways that I can build in breaks or something between those 18 minute chunks so that someone's not falling asleep in the last 15 minutes? Okay, I'm gonna throw it back at you. Okay. I'm gonna throw it back at you, Pat. Why fill the hour? Why not give, how about 20 minutes instead? Okay, I'm going to give you an example of this, all right? Now, for a podcast, it's different. Podcasting is different. The reason why we can go for an hour is because there's multiple voices here. Oh, I see. We're having a conversation. Uh, We're breaking it up. Every time you speak or I speak, it almost starts the clock from zero. So it's a little bit more interesting. But if it was just you for one hour, talking into a camera, that wouldn't be nearly as engaging no. as what we're doing now. Of course, we all know that intuitively. And yet, so why do we want to present for an hour? I would say don't present for an hour. Yeah. Let me give you a great example of this. Uh, I know someone who uh, I've written about in my, in my new book, but he is a, uh, a young man who's, whose career I've been following for about five years or so. Uh, he was a regional salesperson for a, like a, a, a healthcare company, regional sales guy. Now, first he was just a city sales, then he became regional, then he became country. And now he's one of 20, only 20 vice presidents in a company of 90,000 people, global healthcare company. So he has been fol- following my work and I've been following him for the last few years. He is a student of communication. Every opportunity he has to speak to the CEO or to a higher up, he goes through everything we've talked about. What is my headline? What is the one thing I want people to know? How can I create a jaw-dropping moment? What are the three things this person needs to know? Uh, How do I deliver this message? So he has climbed the ladder of success to become very influential in it global company because, and he credits communication skills, but here's what he learned. Speaking of the hour, he had to give a major pitch to the CEO of this company. The pitch would have released a huge budget of resources for this particular project. His team had one hour with the CEO, which is really hard to get, really hard to get. Again, we're talking about a 90,000 person company. He's, he had one division. He was responsible for division out on the West Coast. He had one hour with the CEO. He had read one of my books on, I think the Talk Like Ted book. 
And he said, well, why do we have to fill the hour if a great TED Talk is 20 minutes? Why don't we do a great 20 minutes and then fill the rest of the hour with however long he wants to ask us questions? And the team was taken aback. They said, but don't you understand? We have one hour with a CEO and nobody gets one hour. He said, trust me, this is going to be much more powerful. So he created a 20-minute presentation. Here is the one reason why you should uh, fund this particular project. Here's three supporting points. They created a video. This was the jaw-dropping moment. They created like a two-minute commercial. When we finish this project, this is what we can announce to the world. And they created a commercial, like a real TV ad, that would look like what the project would look like when it was finished. That was jaw-dropping. Nobody does that in a PowerPoint presentation to the CEO. Yeah. And the, 20 minutes later, they ended. He was fascinated. He asked a few questions. He appreciated the fact that it wasn't a full hour, so he got some time back. And he almost instantly gave them the budget approval. That was a two-year and that particular project is now going to be a national, international healthcare item. I won't tell you what it is, but next year or this year in 2022, you'll be hearing about it. So uh, clearly successful. Hugely successful. And he emailed me and sent me an email. This was a few months ago and said, hey, Carmine, I've just been named one of only 20 vice presidents in this massive company. That's amazing. Like my initial <laughs> counter argument in my own head was like, oh man, well, if I have an hour with this person that I want to have a huge influence on, the more time I'm in there, the more influence I'm having on them or the more real estate I'm taking up in their head. But right. after reading your book, it was like, well, if the memory that I'm leaving with them is boredom or, <laughs> exactly. or you know, dryness or just something that's not very exciting, it's probably not the best impression to leave. Pat, in the neuroscience literature, there's something fascinating called cognitive load. It's called cognitive load, which simply means that there is a point at which information is interesting and then it becomes boring. <laughs> so and it's too 18 much minutes. Too much. That's why the TED Talks are only 18 minutes. Yeah. They have found that 18 minutes is the right amount of time to be somewhat engaging and interesting and not put people to sleep. That is based on this whole cognitive load theory. Okay. So if you have, but the point is you can speak for an hour, you can do three hour lectures or trainings. But the point is to keep breaking it up, do something new and novel, go to Q and A, uh, bring in a second character, bring in another speaker, Yeah. Uh, do something that's a demo, uh, take a break, come back. Then it restarts the clock. It's probably- But if you're just going straight through three hours or even full hours straight through, uh, when, when we only hear one voice, you, that becomes boring. Then you've, you, you capture people's attention for 10 minutes. God, you're fascinating, you're interesting. I wanna hear more from Pat. One hour later, I'm like, oh my God, when is this gonna end? That's not the impression you want to leave with people. It makes total sense. And it probably explains my grades on my night classes that were three hours long in college, 
which I remember pretty vividly as being extremely dry towards the end. Um, exactly. John Medina said that too. John Medina is a lecturer, obviously, in the on the college level. He said, uh-huh. you should never lecture more than 50 minutes. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. And if you have to, break it up in some way, but don't go three hours straight. Now, one person will like that. And yet we do it. People do that all the time because we're not really thinking this through. Carmen, I got a couple more questions for you, and then I'll move into our rapid fire questions, which is how we typically end, because I know we've uh, been going for a good amount of time, and I want to respect your day. We don't want to reach cognitive load. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, that was a really interesting conversation between Pat and Carmine. Uh-huh. Is it, when is it going to end? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But that's why, that's why when I deliver keynotes, for example, I'll bring in videos. I do a lot of video yeah. uh, clips as well. So it's not just me. It's let's listen to someone uh, who I've interviewed or who I've talked to that reflects what we just talked about. By doing something like that, it resets the clock. And that's something else in cognitive load theory. It's called resetting the clock. You can speak for more than 20 minutes, reset the clock so it doesn't feel like we've been speaking for 20 minutes. Reset it. You know, Carmen, I'm actually curious your thoughts on the podcasting platform and how people are able to stay engaged because you look at things like the Joe Rogan podcast and like the average conversation is like two to three hours and it's the number one podcast in the world. Is there anything that you would point to that's like, this is why this format works in long form? Okay. Uh, this is called anecdotal bias. Okay. okay? This, this too is right. in, the, in the cognitive research. You cannot, see, you keep people who say that long form works will always point to only one person, it's Joe Rogan, okay? The, uh, or Howard Stern. Howard Stern does some great interviews. I, I don't think he's three hours though, uh, but, or Joe Rogan, that's anecdotal bias. You're not, we, no one else is Joe Rogan right. except for Joe Rogan. No one else is um, Tony Robbins who can do, who can keep people's uh, attention for three days 50 hours worth of material at his level, he's Tony Robbins. Okay, he's actually been doing this since the 70s. These are people who are incredibly practiced in their field and what they do. So I think it's, we have to be careful of that kind of bias as well. Not everyone, the average, look at the averages, the average YouTube video is a lot less than two and a half minutes in terms of attention span. In fact, I've I've seen some of the data where after about 15 seconds, if you don't grab someone's attention, there's a huge drop off. And then the average length is more like two and a half minutes before there's another substantial drop off. So it's very, very hard to keep someone's attention for that long. And that's why I, I focus on practice, building up. Don't just assume that you have, it takes some humility. Don't just assume that you've got the skills to keep someone's attention for a long period of time. Oh, yeah. That's really very, very rare. Yeah. And Joe Rogan, of course, there's, there's more than one character there. It's not just Joe talking, although he does talk a lot, right? Yep. But they're, they're interesting topics. They're interesting interviews, people who you want to hear from. 
and he's very well, I don't know much about his background in terms of his uh, research, but he's really well researched in that particular personality. Whereas a lot of podcasts that I hear, yours, this one's different, which is why I'm on, because uh-huh. you obviously read the books or you're interested in the uh, topic. Yeah. I've been on a lot of podcasts where it's like, oh, okay, so let's talk about this topic. Hey, Carmine, why don't you just tell us about this? They're not as well researched. It's not as it's it's dry. Yeah. So part of having a good podcast or any good conversation, you've got to know something about your guest. You've got to do some research into that person. And a lot of people don't. Yeah. Skills, the back and forth <laughs> conversation and knowledge, that all makes sense because it is such a unique thing. So I'm glad we covered on that when we're talking about the cognitive load. And you know what, actually, that's a great transition point to my next question, which was based around Tony Robbins, because I've heard he does some really interesting exercises prior to getting on stage, like jumping on a trampoline. Right. Is there anything that you'd recommend people would do like the five to 10 minutes before getting on stage? I absolutely do, because I've had to learn this myself. Uh, I learned this from Navy SEALs who do Navy SEAL training and instructor. How do Navy SEALs, when they are put into these uh, really frightening, terrifying situations, what happens to all of us naturally? Fight or flight response. Heart rate goes up. Even people who are incredibly well-trained, when they're dropped at night into a compound situation, automatically everything's going to kick into gear. That's not what you want when you're a SEAL or a Green Beret. I've talked to the Green Berets about this too. How do they calm down? They, they do the breathing exercises. And many of your listeners probably know about it. You know, the breathing exercises that we all hear about, it's called four by four breathing. So you take in those deep breaths through your nostrils, you know, and, and you count to about four hold it for four, and then release it for four. You do that four times, and it actually sends a signal to your brain that this is not as much of a threat. So now all of a sudden your heart rate kind of calms down a little bit. So the best thing you can do before any conversation or a podcast, if I'm on a podcast, I was was very, uh, I had a lot of other things that that were going on just prior to this podcast. But now I've got to concentrate on, on Pat and, and the broker industry and the audience. So now I have to get focused. So, you know, give me 20 seconds. Uh-huh. Let me just close my eyes, do that breathing, and then I can, boom. Hey, Pat, let's talk to your audience. <laughs> yeah. So how long it, should the breathing go? That, slow down, breathe. Okay. And I do this before major presentations so that my the brain sends a signal yeah. to my heart. It's okay. It's yeah. not a threat. And every, and and then all of a sudden everything calms down. You don't get those sweaty palms yeah. or anticipation. You've got to calm down. And breathing is the best way to do that. Do you do the breathing for like five minutes or just one minute? No. Is there an idea? Not, not even that long. Yeah. I mean, you really, usually it's the four by four, you know, yeah. I'm just going to do those four, maybe four or five times. Yeah. And then that, that is enough to slow down your heart rate ahead of time. So about, you know, 60 seconds is, is fine just to kind of slow down that heart rate a little bit. Okay. That's the biggest problem. 
is when we all start speaking, we're on. Okay, signal to the brain, that's a threat. Boom. Threat, heart rate goes up. Fight or flight. Okay. Starting, uh-oh, I'm starting to get a dry mouth here. I'm coughing. My, my, my palms are sweating. Uh, oh, w- w- what's going on? Oh, and now I'm panicking even more. It's a threat. You've got to, th- that's what happens to everybody, even the most trained Navy SEALs when they're in a threatening situation. The reason why they can stay calm is because they practice being in the situation, like we've talked about, real world conditions, practice under severe stress, and they go through their breathing exercises. So can you imagine, I'm talking to a Navy SEAL instructor, and it's exactly this question, and he says, oh, well, we calm down by doing breathing exercises. I said, well, if that can calm you down in a terrifying situation where you're being shot at, it should calm me down before a presentation. (laughs) (laughs) It makes a lot of sense, and I love that. You had to put a smile on your face. Mm-hmm. I put a little smiley face on my notes every once in a while to remind me. Put a smile on your face because then you're in presentation mode. And when we're in presentation mode, it's all about my slides. These are really important, Pat. Yeah. You've got to see slide number 32. This is really important graphic. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my demeanor changes. I'm not natural. I'm not, I don't have a smile on my face. I don't have a, a a gleam in my eyes that I'm excited to be here because I'm too focused on the content. And is that slide going to come up? Oh, can you read that? Maybe that wasn't the best slide. Oh, you know, Carmine said I should only use this many slides. These are too many. Pretty soon you start getting in your own head and you forget that you're ha- you have to be engaging and you're having a conversation with somebody. I all When I saw myself on video for many years, when I start thinking about my presentation, the smile wipes away from my face. All of a sudden, I look like a glum. What, what just happened? It's because I was thinking about what I was going to say next. So breathe. Go through some deep breathing exercises. Calm the heart rate down. It's not a threat. Put a smile on your face and say, this is an opportunity for me to share my ideas with other people, and this is going to be fun. Carmine, you've unloaded so many valuable insights and takeaways in this conversation, and you've been so generous with your time. I just want to say thank you. And um, if you're ready for it, jump into our five rapid fire questions, which you can answer as quickly uh, or with as much length as you'd like. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. Okay. I know you're a Bay Area guy, but you spent some time in LA. Do you have a favorite Bay Area sports team? Uh, 49ers. I grew up on Joe Montana and Steve Young. Okay. We're l- one, of the, the, one of the nicest, most generous people I've ever interviewed was Steve Young. Wow. Uh, okay, yeah. So if you read his book on being a quarterback, and it's very inspiring. It's one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. But yeah, I, I, I used to watch the Niners with my dad, uh, who passed away 10 years ago. So, you know, the Montana, the Young days, and just seeing the uniforms and the fans kind of brings all that back. So I have to be a Niners fan. Yes. I'm a huge Niners fan as well. And I think we're, we're, we're looking pretty optimistic. I know we had a tough game last Thursday, but uh, yep. looking pretty optimistic for the rest of the year, hopefully for the playoffs. So I, I included this 
next question personally because I have to give one of these speeches coming up, but do you have any tips for someone that's about to give a best man speech? That's where storytelling comes in. You don't have to try to say everything that you like about a person or everything you can remember. Have a theme. What is just one theme? You know, the, the one uh, idea or word that comes to your mind when you think about this particular person. And what is a story that complements the theme? You know, when I think about so-and-so, uh, it's all about integrity. Um, and that's what I've learned from so-and-so. Uh, let me tell you a story. You know, sometimes it's just that simple. What is the one thing you've learned from this person? And tell me a story about that person. Don't try to include everything. Uh, some of the best they're not necessarily best man speeches, but they are uh, like when people win a Grammy or they win an award. Sometimes the best award speeches, I just saw Jay-Z give one, where it's, uh, I want to celebrate uh, my mentors. And so-and-so was a mentor of mine, and let me tell you a story. So the theme is, I'm not here to thank everybody. I'm not here just to give you a long list. I'm here to thank my mentors, and let me tell you a story about one or two of them. That's a nice way of winning an award uh, or giving a short speech. And brevity, caught load, yeah, okay? Yeah. Three minutes is beautiful. 22 minutes, now, now I'm looking at my watch going, uh, okay, much. that was a really nice talk, Pat, but... Uh, are the appetizers ready? Yeah. <laughs> Where are the hors d'oeuvres? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Noted. I'm going to use that. So the time, the time and the stories. I want to hear what you come up with. Send me what oh, you come up with. Oh, I'll make sure it's recorded. Yeah, they, they haven't set a date for the wedding just yet, but I just got the news that um, I'm going to be co-best men with somebody else. So Excellent. Yeah, I'll definitely send it to you. Um, Okay, one topic that was kind of interesting when we were thinking about public speakers is the demographic of comedians. Obviously, these guys are doing public speaking all the time. Is there a comedian that stands out to you as a great public speaker? Uh, yes, because he works on the craft, and that's Jerry, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. Okay, so I read his book, um, Is This Anything? That's the name of the book. Like, is this anything? Question <laughs> mark. Okay. Read the book. It's actually a very good book for communication skills because it shows you just how involved a joke is. A good joke takes years to craft, to get it just right. So Jerry Seinfeld is a real student of comedy, just like I'm a student of public speaking. Everything we talked about is kind of like what Jerry does. Yeah. He'll, he'll craft an idea for a joke, and then he'll practice it at a small club. He goes to a small club. How did it work? Let me get some feedback on it. And then he'll tweak it for the next audience, and he tweaks it again. And he, and he has these letters or these notes that he's taken over many, many years that shows how hard it is. He, to tell a good joke. He's such a good And the reference. reason why he's a good public speaker is because when he's interviewed, he has a couple of funny stories or anecdotes or experiences that he weaves into the conversation. So he's obviously prepared for that particular interview. So Jerry Seinfeld, I think, is someone to not only to watch, but he does have some really good communication advice for the rest of us. He's such a good reference. I'm really glad you brought him up because I recently heard a podcast with him. 
I think it was on the Tim Ferriss podcast where he talks about writing and his process for writing. And I had- I heard it too. I had no idea there was so much thought behind everything that he did because it just seems so natural and free flowing when he's on stage. Isn't that relevant to everything we just talked about? Yeah. When you watch a great presenter or a good speaker, there's a lot to it behind the scenes. It doesn't just happen. Great public speakers are made. They're not born. Mm. It takes work. Great takeaway for everybody that's listening to this. Okay, next question is, what is the best TED Talk that you've ever seen? Um, oh, I, I've got to go back to um, Brian Stevenson, who I've mentioned before. Yep, Brian Stevenson. Watch, watch Brian Stevenson and watch that. It'll, it'll blow you away. Not only is it inspiring, but he tells stories. Okay, he tells three stories from his life about civil rights or how he got involved. They're personal stories. They're stories about other people. Beautifully uh, woven into, um, into narrative. The other one, the other person who I think everyone should be watching is Chris Hadfield. Chris Hadfield is the astronaut, the singing astronaut. Uh, so he, he's saying David Bowie uh, up in space at the space station. That, a video that went viral, but he also has this masterful TED talk that is just beautifully done. He uses a lot of metaphor. Again, another advanced public speaking technique. How do you describe to somebody who's never been in space what it's like to be in space or to go up on a rocket? He uses yeah. metaphoric language. When I interviewed Chris Hadfield for my book, Talk Like Ted, I asked him, how did he become such a great public speaker? And he goes, Karma, you know I've been speaking for about 25 years. Practice. Practice. It takes time to get there. <laughs> He's got the experience. Of course, of course. He goes, that didn't just happen. You know, I, as an astronaut, the only, one of the few famous Canadian astronauts, he said, I'm invited all the time to speak at schools, at conferences. I'm sure. He said, this is not the same speaker that you would have seen 25 years ago. Okay, Brian Stevenson and Chris Hadfield. Chris Hadfield. Okay, got it. Final question. As we move into 2022, do you have any resolutions for the new year? I've always, I have about two pages of resolutions. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm, never, I'm never satisfied and I'm constantly trying to raise the bar and improve myself. Uh, the Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, once said that if you want to improve at anything, you've got to be a learn-it-all and not a know-it-all. And I'll never forget, what a great phrase. And you have to be more of a learn-it-all. Uh, so I want to continue to learn and to grow in those areas of communication that I think will help other people. I'm constantly trying to grow as a writer. Uh, for, for one of my new books, I, I went back to writing class. I started rereading books on writing and taking videos and talking to writing instructors. So there are a lot of areas that I want to improve upon as a speaker, as a writer, uh, that will help me as my, in my career, but also help the people who I try to, who I, who I'm reaching. That's a really good nugget to leave the audience with. And I can tell you after this conversation, there's a lot of things that I'm going to implement into my talks, my speeches. I have to do it regularly with my company, uh, with the podcast. It's kind of a unique format. And 
a lot of the conferences that we go to uh, based around cyber, cyber insurance and where the market's going. So, Oh, sure. Th those are complicated topics too. So you yeah. do have to be a simplifier. Yes, seriously. It's people get lost really fast. So just breaking things down, using that, that headline approach, you know, the three agenda items, all that stuff. But I know uh, that you're a wealth of knowledge, Carmine, and uh, I'm excited to have you on again in the future. And uh, if there's anything that you ever need, don't hesitate to reach out. I know we're both Bay Area guys, and uh, I will a thousand percent send you the best man uh, speech video. And Please I might do. pick your brain a little bit on the way up to it uh, to see if there's anything that I think would hit or not hit. I'm here to help. You're the man. Carmine, thank you so much for coming on. I will talk to you soon. Thank you for inviting me. Best to your audience as well. Thank you. Today's podcast is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you are tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today.